You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation. Brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com. And be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, in-person classes, and customized corporate workshops and performances. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. You can go online and find out all the information you need at secondcity.com. Welcome to the world of Tony Ho from CBC Podcasts. It's an award-winning, bite-sized narrative comedy series about human relationships. Familiar, hilarious, and sometimes unnerving. The troupe features Miguel Rivas, Adam Niebergall, and alumnus of the Second City Mainstage, Roger Bainbridge. They will take you on a darkly comedic ride that finds honesty in every situation. You can listen and subscribe to Tony Ho on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you enjoy today's podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it. Um, I speak to Michael F. Shine, who is the founder and president of Microfame Media. Uh, he's got a book uh, that I really was surprised. Like I didn't know what I was going to get into. And I think it's terrific. It's called The Hype Handbook, 12 Indispensable Success Secrets from the World's Greatest Propagandists, Self-Promoters, Cult Leaders, Mischief Makers, and Boundary Breakers. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is getting the yes and. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Michael F. Shine, welcome to the show. It is so great to be here. Uh, you offer an insight in the introduction to your book, which is a lesson I think many of us learn early in our professional careers. Uh, and I think this is true across industries. You write, quote, being good at what you do isn't enough to get people to buy what you're selling, end quote. Talk to us about that. You know, I think like so many artsy fartsy kids which you've dealt with a number of them in in your (laughs) life um which i was i I just think there's this idea that if you do great work it's going to get noticed and 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 you know the mythology kind of feeds into that you hear about rock bands or or comedians you know or um the person who maxed out their credit card to fund a film and it it got bought at the last minute so you know i i was fed on all of those stories and then when i moved into my professional life you know i eventually stopped being so artsy fartsy and got a corporate job because i needed mm-hmm. to make a living learned a lot but eventually wasn't happy and left and i was a writer and i figured because i was a good writer and i knew something about business I could just go out into the world and people would love my writing because that was the mythology I had built up and it didn't work. I, I, um, I almost lost all of my savings and I just had to get really honest about the fact that 
there are a lot of really great ideas and a lot of really talented people who reject the idea of attracting attention to themselves and getting people excited about their stuff in a strategic way. And they, and they don't, they don't make it happen, unfortunately. And when, tell, tell me what the aha moment was when you decided that the solution to your problems was picking a fight with Gary Vaynerchuk. Yeah. So, so the, that was just, so it's sort of an extension of, of this story. Does your audience kind of know, is that the kind of audience who would know who a Gary Vaynerchuk is? I'm going to hope no. So <laughs> yeah. explain who this guy is. Because he's really a micro celebrity in my world and sort of the marketing and communications world. He's, he's like Elvis. Um, but, <laughs> you know, my mom doesn't know who he is. So, um, yeah, I, I, again, I had worked in this corporate job. All of, you know, I had played in punk bands. I wanted to write novels, all of this mm-hmm. stuff. But I, I got into the corporate life as tends to happen. Um, didn't realize that I had a low grade of misery at all times. And um, eventually, like I said, I left. And and when I did, I think I was really sort of brainwashed by, by that world because I was very, very quote unquote professional for the first like six months to a year of trying to make it as, as a freelance copywriter writing about technology you know, I would write pitch decks and I would, you know, j- j- tried my hand at SEO and I would read about landing pages and just, just really focused on the nuts and bolts of, of professional marketing. And I wasn't doing well at all. I mean, I had a few jobs and they would refer me to some other people, but I wasn't making a profit. I was burning through my savings, as I said. And then what, what actually happened is um, I, I had I met someone for dinner in New York, which I had moved back to. And it was in the lower Lower East Side, mm-hmm. which when I was hanging out there and playing in bands was a dumpy kind of area. But at this point, there were like, I don't know, I remember someone was getting like a high class haircut at 10 o'clock at night in like a salon and there were bankers and lawyers. And I walked past one of the clubs we used to play at. And I remembered how when I played in this band, even though. I'm not like really that musically talented. I write good songs, but I somehow thought I would change rock and roll. Sure. But we used to pack the club. I mean, we had a residency there, Arlene's Grocery, which is a popular club. We yeah. would pack it on a Wednesday night. And, you know, we got on TV, we got on the cover of, of New York Press, and we did it completely through what I used to call hyping things up. We didn't call it marketing, but we would do things like, um, we got ourselves on Showtime at the Apollo because we knew we would get booed off. And that got us press coverage and things right. like that. And I just was like, you know, I'm not really being, A, I'm not being myself. But beyond that, I'm forgetting about how people actually are. You know, people yeah. respond to, to to color and to anger and to humor. Mm-hmm. And why did that have to stop in the business world? So um, I actually disagreed with Gary Vaynerchuk's this internet guru who is all about hustle. You know, he's always screaming at young people that they need to like tweet from the (laughs) toilet and work around the clock and this, and the person getting rich is Gary Vaynerchuk, not the young people. So um, I wrote an article in Inc called why Gary Vaynerchuk is flat, flat out wrong, which I really believed. I I thought Mm -hmm. it was an inelegant way of, of working, but he responded to me. Perfect. That night calling me out by name, very agitated. And it kicked off my career. I mean, I, I gained all these followers and fans, even as his fans were um, lambasting me. So, yeah. And this is the origin story of, of, of the book hype uh, and, and which I really enjoyed. And, and yeah. I think it's interesting because it's a nice blend of 
you know, insights that we know from academia, neuroscience, behavioral science to be true, stories of just, you know, these infamous characters uh, from a wide variety of fields, um, but always to sort of a central point of, um, and, and, and I've often said, you know, um, uh, use this quote that, you know, if it can't, it's not a superpower uh, uh, if it can't be used for evil. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, so. I love that. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. Uh, so, so that this idea of you know hype itself is not good or bad, but it can be used um, uh, I, in either way. Um, and so, the main thing here with this origin story is this idea that um, people like to rally around um, a common enemy, um, yeah. and w- th- that this feels uh, like it's on steroids in the world we live in today, right? Yeah, it, it's so there's there are a couple of things you said here that that I want to speak to. So it's so interesting. Um, and thank you for your kind words, you know, about the book. I mean, one of the influences on writing the book, which I very specifically called the hype handbook, mm-hmm. is because I remember in high school, people used to pass around this thing called the anarchist cookbook. Oh, that's right. And, yeah. That should not have existed. I mean, this was was a revolutionary in the 60s who basically made this. If you wanted to do anything like revolutionary, you could find it in this book from making drugs out of marigold seeds to making Molotov cocktails. But what I thought was cool is the way people would like covertly pass this around. It was this idea like this has all the answers to this evil superpower. And I didn't, I, I wanted to kind of do something like that, but, but ethical. Cause I see all of these people out in the world, like you said, especially today it's on steroids, but there are certain people who we would consider b- bad actors, you know, who come to mass psychology very easily. And so we think that these tactics and strategies themselves are, are, are evil, but what's really going on is that if you're a narcissist or a psychopath or have something like this, you see, you don't let your emotions get in the way. You right. you can figure out exactly what needs to be done to get a reaction without letting your emotions get in the way. So what I wanted to do was create this one sort of touchstone that good people doing great work, good businesses, good art could reapply these same mass psychology methods but for good causes, because there's nothing moral or immoral, like you said about the superpower. It's just it's just the way humans react to stimuli. Yep, yep. Uh, so you you talk about some good people and some people not not so good people. So yeah. uh, uh, I don't know if our audience knows about Shep Gordon. I, I, I do, and and I think the the story you tell is the quintessential Shep Gordon story. Yeah. Uh, introduce our audience to who this guy was. So he's like the consummate trickster. I I would actually, it seems like he's actually a very good person when you hear him in interviews and things like that. Um, But he was Alice Cooper's original manager back when they were the Alice Cooper band, when when the name of the band was Alice Cooper. And um, I think he met them just, he was dealing pot at a hotel that that a bunch of um, rock stars would stay at. And he needed a front for his weed dealing operation. So he, he took this band and he didn't even like their music. Mm-hmm. So he said to himself, okay, how do I get this band to stand out? And um, he said, you know, everyone is trying to get their bands on the cover of Rolling Stone and in Cream and in all these rock and roll magazines. But this was at the height of the generation gap. And he said, what if we could get every parent in the world to hate this band, Alice Cooper? Then all of the kids 
who are trying to set themselves apart from their parents would love Alice Cooper. Mm-hmm. So that's where all the crazy Alice Cooper stuff came from. The, the guillotines on stage. Now it's old hat, but at the time no one was doing this, you know, that someone threw a chicken on stage and he tossed it back into the crowd and the crowd tore it apart. So they, they played up the story that Alice Cooper dismembered the chicken, you know, yeah. and um, the quintessential story that I write about in the book is uh, they were already big in the U S but they weren't big in England and they had a gig at Wembley Arena, and it, I think that holds 10,000 people, and they had sold like 500 tickets, and it was coming close. So it was going to be a massive, massive catastrophe failure. And um, so what, what Chef Gordon did is he hired a truck driver and paid him a lot of money, because this was borderline illegal, to carry a big um, billboard of Alice Cooper, the singer, naked, with a boa constrictor um, covering his private parts. And then the truck broke down at rush hour, quote unquote, yeah, in Piccadilly uh, Circus. So it caused this massive traffic jam with this naked rock star, you know, mm-hmm. in this area. So, you know, they, they brought it up in Parliament. It was, a, you know, disgusting and horrible. And it was on the news. And they sold out Wembley Arena. And Alice Cooper became, you know, one of the biggest acts in England. So that that... This isn't to say that you need to be so flamboyant. The idea is that if you can pick an enemy, even if that enemy is an idea, yeah. that's much more attractive to people, whether they believe it or not, than saying, oh, this is how great I am. Look at my yeah. stuff. And, and, and the enemy here is, is teenagers against parents. Against parents. parents. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. uh, I, I side, just completely sidebar, uh, years ago, uh, we were going to open a theater in Cleveland uh, that was going to be next to an Alice Cooperstown. Do you know about his restaurant? I've heard of it, actually. That's funny. So, it's a combination Alice Cooper and baseball. Oh, and Cooperstown. That's so funny. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, and you go there and they're all dressed like Alice Cooper. And I'm just like, didn't like, like, it just felt so like weird and That's crossover. Weird. I, I just spent an, like an entire day in, in Phoenix at an Alice Cooperstown. I don't know if they still exist. It was weird. Um, so, it, in, that is in, very weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, let's let's contrast that with uh, another story early in the book, which is around Otto van Bismarck. Uh, yeah. So we're talking about why why is he in the hype uh, handbook? And you know, it's funny the, the, these people are so different, right? Alice Cooper, yeah. Otto van Bismarck, uh, von Bismarck. I have all of these people, and that's really done on purpose because it shows that you can have. You know, the chancellor of Prussia, a rock star, a celebrity preacher and an entrepreneur. And if you strip away all the surface detail, the things that these people use to gain influence and power are remarkably similar. So in this case, I mean, Otto von Bismarck was the chancellor of Prussia. This was a German state before Germany was was unified. And there had always or for many, many years been this dream of a unified Germany. People don't realize that um, a lot of people don't realize that Germany is a relatively modern country. It's, it's yeah. uh, it was a series of States. And um, Otto von Bismarck just really had a tough time achieving this unification because there were a lot of cultural differences between the States. They all spoke German, but you know, that, that was about it. And so then he said, well, you know, we need a war. And so he said, well, who should we have a war with? And he's figured, you know, France is who we should have a war with because there, there's there's just this ancient sort of tension between, you know, it's a long story, but they split off into separate kingdoms around the yep. time of Charlemagne. And there's just been tension between those countries for many, many years. 
And so he fomented a war. You know, he manufactured documents. He, he, he basically started the Franco-Prussian War and the Germans won and all the states gathered around. And it was the beginning of Germany. I mean, that was really the beginning of the German nation. As we know, Germans um, have been nationalistic. So it really did do the trick. So it was interesting when I was, I, I hadn't really considered the idea that you could achieve unity by declaring a war. But then when I thought about it, I'm like, oh, that feels like that happens all the time. Well, think about what we're going through now, right? Like, so everyone is like, we've never been so divided. We've never been so divided. I'm not so sure that being unified is the American MO. I mean, we had World War II followed by the Cold War, where we had very serious enemies for the better part of the century. But before that, I mean you know, we had the civil war. We, we, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's all been all kinds of things. The States didn't even want to come together at one point. So I actually think a lot of what we're seeing now is because we don't have a common enemy. So we're tearing ourselves apart. Um, uh, Moving on to the the chapter called create your own secret society. Um, I remember talking to Nick Epley, a professor at the university of Chicago, who who once said, "If, if you want to feel better, do something nice for someone. Um, and, and that's, that's largely true. Uh, and you extend that even in, in the sort of hype sense of like, one of the ways you can influence is just by doing nice acts for people over and over and the right people over and over again. I'm assuming, and and you can either tell me this or not tell me this, but I'm assuming you see that in the comedy world a lot. I mean, I know that comics are, um, notoriously, um, competitive, Stand-up comics. Stand-up comics. Not improvisers. So, okay, this is what I'm thinking. I mean, I'm a total outsider of that world other than the fact that I love comedy. But I see these these people who have been on, like, Saturday Night Live or or Second City even, and you just always see them hooking each other up with things. You know, the the Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, and you had the whole, you know, uh, Sandler and Norm MacDonald and Chris Mm -hmm. Rock and all those guys. And I feel like... um, that is is kind of the same idea. So I call it a secret society because people always say, and again, I'm talking out of my backside when it comes to comedy. I only know what I see, you yep. know, um, from an outside perspective. You know, people always say when they're complaining about why they're not successful, they'll say, well, I'm not connected. I'm not part of the old boys club. I'm not part of the old boys network. And what you'll often see with what I call hype artists positive and negative hype artists is that they always make it seem like things are happening at a grassroots level. Their stuff is just so good that they gain all these followers. But what they really do is they find ways to start their own old boys or old girls network. Mm-hmm. And there are ways to do that, you know, and it's about bonding over common interests. So um, social media makes it really easy. I mean, if you go on like Twitter, let's say, and instead of trying to amass followers, you hover around people you want to know and wait for some human bond. Like, wow, you like the same band, you like the same show, whatever sports team. And you connect with them about that. Everyone's a human being. And then again, you start doing favors. You start helping them out, do things that you could give them that they wouldn't be able to get otherwise. And everyone's got things like that. And, um, you, you know, things will happen for you. People will do favors for you in return. Yeah, I mean, we were talking before before we started recording that I I just recorded a crossover episode with the Behavioral Grooves guys, and you've been yeah. on on that podcast. Yeah. I'm a, I wrote them a fan letter. I was like, I like your stuff, yeah. and they wrote back, we like your stuff, and like, so we're like, well, let's do a crossover and it helps each other. And then 
And then I was like, I'll help you get Alan Alda if I can for your podcast. And they're like, yeah, just let us know. And, and it's like, you know, it, the thing is, you know, the evidence, the science tells us that we're reluctant to um, often to ask for those things when in fact we shouldn't be because people do enjoy doing nice things for other they people. Do. And what happens over time is I find is that a scene will form. That's why I call it the secret society. So your podcast is sort of loosely related. You know, you're dealing with ideas and with a lot of brain stuff. Their stuff is on the flip side, more about it. it, it so you're like an ex, well, current entertainment guy, but who was totally an entertainment guy who yeah. became a brain and science guy and their brain and science guys who are obsessed with entertainment. Yes. So like this scene can start to form where everyone around this sort of common thing where people are hooking each other up. And I think that's really, really vital to spreading, spreading your ideas. And, and to your point, when you talk about the, the SNL people, it, it's because especially the ones with an improv background uh, are they they work best in an ensemble. Right. So they they want to work with the people they like to work with. And that just is generally true, I think, for for most people. So yeah, like the and, and I've often uh uh done this this quote when I asked Harold Ramis like what what's one piece of advice? And he said, you know, find the smartest person in the room and stand next to them. That's cool. Um and and for him the it was more of find the funniest person in the room and that was John Belushi. And so they that's you know yeah. Yeah, were, were they? Oh, that's fun because I mean I love Harold Ramis and his stuff. I didn't know that. So that that was how he sort of he 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 yeah. really he attached plat- himself to a, John Belushi. A, a, a workshop that Del Close was leading had never met Belushi, saw him for two seconds, and then just moved to the room. So he was always next to him, and they were doing scenes together. You know, I don't know how now was John Belushi not famous yet? Nope. No so this is a really on on a, on a different level. This is this is you, you really bring up a good point. So there was this kid that I knew. He was a kid at the time. He was the intern of my first client, mm. just graduated college. But I saw something in him. He was a good writer, hard worker, interesting guy. So just over the years and he couldn't help me, you know, but over the years, I would invite him to dinners that I did. I would always hook him up with things. And over the course of 10 years, he is now the senior editor at Business Insider. And he just excerpted my book. So mm-hmm. my point is, you don't, I think where people go wrong is they look for people only who can help them, people who have already made it. And I think you got to find young people who are the smartest or funniest or most accomplished or, or potentially accomplished person in the room and take a chance on those people as well. Yeah. My story with that is uh, uh, Dave, Dave, the slave. He was an intern uh, at second city when I was first starting. Um, and um, he, you know, we hit it off and became friends. Uh, he goes on to work for uh, a, a management company and comes to me and says like, do you have someone who is like, you think talented that wants representation? I'm like, yeah, there's this young uh, actress, writer, Tina Fey. I think she'd be t- terrific. Hook them up. They're still together today. He's wow. 30 rock. He's you know, and, and he's a renowned uh, manager. Uh, and people always, there was like, Oh my God, you know, David Miner, like he's a shark. And I'm like, no, he was an intern. He's a Dave the slave. <laughs> yeah, Dave yeah. slave became Dave the shark. Yeah. Um, I, one of the things I love about this book is uh, some myth busting that you do. Um, let's, let's tell some people the truth about Thomas Edison. <laughs> if we can. I love this story. I, I didn't know this either. This came out of my research. So, Thomas Edison, while he certainly had an impact on the world, his his impact as an inventor was far more nuanced 
than, than people think. So he did not invent electric light. There was electric light before him. They were arc lights. He did invent the light bulb. However, the way he powered the light bulb, he could not power an area more than the size of lower Manhattan. You know, that took Tesla and, and Westinghouse. He invented the phonograph, but he built buzz around it for 15 years before he could figure out how to make it commercially viable. It was actually supposed to be an improvement to te- telegraphy, you know, to, to, to a telegraph. Yeah. He absolutely in no way, shape or form invented the movie camera. Someone in his lab did. He was out working on some weird mining equipment, you know, that never did anything. So this idea that he, you know, when I was a kid or probably until I wrote this book, I thought he invented electric light, moving pictures, recorded sound, all, all of this. But he, he did not. He invented two things, without a doubt. The industrial laboratory that is still used. Mm-hmm. And he invented the celebrity inventor. So before him, the man of science was Charles Darwin, that model. It was someone, a gentleman who had leisure, who would work for like three or four hours a day, think, you know, this sort of thing. And the thing about Thomas Edison was, he um, was very ambitious, but he was really bad with people. And he didn't um, like, he wasn't gregarious. Part of that was because he was partially deaf. So he had a hard time interacting with people. And part of it was just that that was the way he is. So what he did, because he knew the value of publicity, is he created this modern image of the around the clock working genius. So he would do things like he would, because he didn't like to interact with people. So he would be in his lab at, um, you know, that, I don't even know if this ever happened. He would circulate stories in the press that he was found in his lab by an assistant at midnight sleeping. And the person would wake him up and say, you know, Mr. Edison, you should get home. And he would say, oh, I really should. It is my wedding night. And he created this image. So, so what he basically did was he found, and this is a good lesson. We all have insecurities and weaknesses, yeah. but people like to look up to kind of superhuman characters. And a lot of times, we can build that sort of caricature around ourselves, our image, our character around our insecurities and weaknesses much more easily than we can trying to compete with everybody's strengths. And you see this pattern time and time again. I mean, Warhol did it. I mean, you, you see it a lot. Uh, stand-up comics do that. I mean, you think about the way that they sort of, yeah, well, think about like a Patton Oswalt or, or you know, they, uh, Amy Schumer. They, they start with their fault. Like I'm, I'm a slut or I'm a dumpy guy or whatever. And so you suddenly have this sort of connection to them because they're being sort of authentic and honest. And then of course they're, they're, they're geniuses at, at, at flipping. Uh, you know, that's such a great point. I never thought about that because I, I, you see these comedians, the best comedians, even who is the woman from um, Broad City, the one with the, the curly hair? Um, oh, uh, uh, Ilana Glazer. Ilana Glazer, right? Her, like you, you would see her and you're like, wow, this girl is really lazy and she's a pothead and she really doesn't do very much of anything. But that obviously can't be the case. She's a millionaire, you know, uh, hard hustling comedian. But obviously there's something in her that she was able to turn into this caricature of him, of herself. Yeah. And, and there's got to be something true about it. Right. People are going to be able to, uh, you know, see through it. Uh, all right. Uh, we've, tor- we've torn down the myth of Thomas Edison. I'm very happy <laughs> with that. Uh, the next one I want us to tear down is Myers-Briggs type indicator. Oh, yeah. You know, um, that there, there, there's, there's been a little bit of press on this lately. And it, what, what's interesting about it. Huh? Not enough. Right. What's interesting about it is that it gets swallowed up. This is the power of these sorts of, of yeah. labels. So um, the Myers-Briggs types, Briggs types 
type indicator, the personality test that is used more than any personality test. McKinsey uses it. It's all over the place. People just believe it wholeheartedly. And for those of you who don't know what that is, that's where they label you as an INFP or an IN or ENJ, whatever, you know, extrovert, introvert. Basically, the people who created this thing, it was a mother and daughter who read a bunch of biographies of famous people. They were not psychologists. They were not psychiatrists. They were nothing. They, there was no science behind it whatsoever. They read a bunch of biographies and, and grouped people based on Carl Jung's um, philosophies of extrovert and introvert, which themselves are, are, are dubious. So because he, he, you know, he wasn't really a scientist. He's a great writer and a mystic, but he was just, you know, mm-hmm. doing his thing. So. What's, what I find interesting about this is that people like Adam Grant have written articles about how there, who's a psychologist, that there's no science behind this. But the article, with the exception of a few inside baseball people, they just they just come and they go. And mm-hmm. and, you know, all of these institutions just just follow this stuff, you know, as gospel. So I, I guess really the lesson here is that people love ear candy and eye candy. You know, that we, 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 used to, we used to have priests in our society. I don't even mean Catholic priests. I mean like ancient priests and they would have medallions and incense and robes and symbols. And, and these were like symbols of authority because we can't figure out who to follow otherwise. There's too much information being thrown at us. So you could say to someone, hey, you're kind of an easygoing guy. And people will say, oh, thanks a lot. I don't know. And you say, you're an INFP. And suddenly it's, it's, you've put a label on them. You've put a box around it. You've put science behind it. And so if you have ideas that are really good, but that are hard to distinguish from other people, you got to use that ear candy and eye candy. You got to use yeah. those symbols and, and structures. Um, it, it, it goes a long, long way. Yeah. This is why all my academic friends hate Malcolm Gladwell's work. Yeah, he does that a lot. Yeah. He does that a lot. Yeah. And th- it's why they appreciate Dan Pink because uh, they feel like he stays true to the science. But I, I think it's Malcolm Gladwell probably sells a little bit more than Dan Pink. He sells more. And, and he's a, you know, I think he's a compelling writer. I mean, it, yeah. w- you know, I mean, I, I think he created a genre. I guess the problem with him, and I like his writing is that he he puts it out as as these are the facts. This is just the way it is, where there's more nuance usually. Exactly. He smooths off the rough edges, yeah. Uh, so in a moment, I'm going to ask you for a yes and story, which is how we always end the podcast. But before we do that, you introduced me to someone who I'd never heard of, and I went to Lake Forest College. So I was very excited to hear about Amy Semple McPherson. Oh, yeah. Uh, tell us about this character and why I'm mentioning Lake Forest. So... It had funny Lake Forest. Yeah. So um, I had not heard of her either, but um, apparently when she was in her heyday, she was one of the most famous uh, women in America. And um, she in L.A., they still know who she is. Some people do the older people, but she was the first celebrity preacher. You know, um, it was it was, uh, you know, 80, 90 years ago. She had a radio thing and she had this massive mega church. And um she was just every televangelist took their um their prompts from this person she um she would come into her cathedral uh on a motorcycle and say you're speeding to stop you're speeding to hell you know and just all of these crazy um stories and she was very very theatrical so um the the story about lake forest she did a stopover in in lake forest 
on her way to L.A., where, where she really made her name. And um, there were a ton of street preachers at that time. She wasn't unique in that. But what she did was she she went to a corner and just froze and stood there for like a half hour, just frozen. And she was an attractive woman. So people started to gather around and, and she just was staring into space, just staring out there. And then she after about a half hour, when there was a crowd, she just snapped out of it and ran to this church that she had set up as her new church and everyone followed her. Mm-hmm. So she created this sort of the tension that we associate with, with theater and drama, this idea like what's going to happen. They didn't know the end of the story. So there are a lot of ways that we can all create tension. I mean, we think we tend to think of theater as lights and, you know, colors and sound and that, that part matters. But if you think about the original Greek theater, there was none of that. It was, it yeah. was just dialogue and it was building tension through words. So casting yourself in the role casting let's say you own um a business or 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 you have clients or customers if you can cast those people as protagonists in some great drama and make whatever you're selling as the lightsabers and the tools that they can use to get to their goal and not always let them know what's coming next it it goes a long way and I think the theatrical metaphor is good one because you, you've also talked elsewhere in the book about wardrobe, you know, sort of yeah. having you dress for the, the, the kind of person you want to be. I mean, I remember uh, back in the early days of me just starting at Second City uh, uh, when I was about to do my first L.A. Uh, studio uh, rounds uh, with our owner at the time, Andrew Alexander. He's like, let me talk to you about how you're going to dress. You are not going to wear a suit. Um, you are going to have like, you're going to dress up some jeans and you're, I was like, oh shit. Okay. This is like a whole different thing. Like right. and, and recognizing that, yeah, the agent will have a suit on. That's the only person who's going to have a suit in these, these meetings. Um, you know, these guys are going to be unshaven and wearing baseball caps. And it, so it's, it's a great point because I'm not a natural hype artist. That's why I became who I became because I really had to reverse engineer this stuff. Yeah. So when I started my career, I would go to conferences, creative conferences where creatives were, and I would wear a tie because I always grew up thinking that if you wanted to show up professionally, mm-hmm. you you should dress up. And I forgive any of you who do that. And a tie is is acceptable in certain circumstances, but it's not about there's a professional way to dress that in certain offices you wear khakis in certain offices you wear ties. The idea is that you have to figure out what you're trying to convey about yourself. So if you're the creative and a certain type of creativity, what does dressing in a suit tell people? It tells people you're not that creative. Yep. And I think that's about comedy. How funny could you be in comedy if you're dressed like a suit? Yeah, well, I think I think you you know in the early if you think about the sort of transition into alternative comedy, it right. was like Smothers Brothers were were really challenging it, and then and then you can see that. You, when you come to Second City, the walls of photos tell the story. You see the move, and it's, yeah, it's they right around the suits in the nine when everyone got out of the suits and then into the, like the hit, right. and the hair got longer and the sideburns came down and yeah, it's a and 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 then it goes back. You know, at a certain point, the I think you know Colbert and others kind of John Mulaney does it. Yeah. You know, yeah, and, and and so I think it it it, it depends where you are in the arc, um, but it but it's always going to change, and that and that's because. And this is the book is all about this context changes context. Exactly. Is important. So these hype artists recognize when they see a shift and they, and they then can make a move. 
Um, and they, if they do it in other times or other contexts, it might not work. So that that's just, you know, that's a zeitgeist thing. This is an awful story, but um, it's really telling. I mean, Charles Manson was <laughs> was a pimp and 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 he was older than the hippies and he was in jail. And when he learned how to manipulate people, he he left prison and he consciously put on the hippie garb because he knew that there were all of these kids out there who were dislocated yeah. and that he could position himself as sort of this cult guru. So again, horrible, you know, I use examples from terrible people because he got middle-class prom Queens to do awful, awful things. And his level of manipulation and, and understanding of the human psyche was, was really good. And one of the things he did do was use clothing in that way. That was not his natural style of dressing. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Um, we always end the podcast by asking our guests for a yes and story. So in the parlance of improvisation, you get nowhere by saying no, and you don't get that far by saying yes. We say you say yes, and you affirm and contribute in order to explore and heighten. Do you have a yes and story for us? Yeah, I, I guess we can go back to that um, early, the, you know, the, those early days of like trying to figure out how to reinvent myself. I mean, in the early days of, of my life as a young person and everything early days as a young person, obviously, but you know, I, I was very much about, I I'm going to write novels or play in bands and, and, and that's creativity. I'm not going to sacrifice, you know, doing what I'm doing to be creative in business or something like that. And then I went the complete other direction. I was like, I need to make a living. So I need to be very um, professional and do things the right way and create business decks. And I think the breakthrough for me really was a yes. And it was, yes, I'm going to work with businesses because I can do some good there. And that's where the money is. I'm going to do, um, types of writing and marketing and content that aren't just purely artistic. And I'm going to apply the playfulness and the fun and the strategies of art and people like David Bowie and Andy Warhol and, you know, pranksters and tricksters to this thing. And that was the breakthrough for me. It was, it was not thinking of those two worlds as mutually exclusive or, or um, that one is selling out the other thing and want, or the other is making the other thing unprofessional. It was very much yes and. And I had never thought of it that way, actually. So thank you. Yeah, there's an element of bricolage to that, right? Bringing together these differing things that somehow yeah. by them coming together or, you know, make the thing greater than it, than it was before. Exactly. Uh, but that had... took a lot. I mean, that was hard for yeah. me to mentally wrap my head around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the book is called The Hype Handbook. 12 Indispensable Success Secrets from the World's Greatest Propagandists, Self-Promoters, Cult Leaders, Mischief Makers, and Boundary Breakers. Michael F. Shine, thank you for coming on the show. This was a total blast. Thank you. Getting the SAN is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor and producer is L.F. Garris. We get support at the Second City from Jenny Crowley, Abby Bumblebear, Mike Farinaccio, and Colleen Fahey. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you have questions, guest ideas, or if you want more information on working with Second City Works, you can go to www.secondcityworks.com, or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
Survive.